Trainer Talks and Tales acknowledges the traditional owners and custodians of the land in which we're recording this podcast, the Turrbal and Yugara people of Mianjin. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Trainer Talks and Tales love having an array of guests with a variety of opinions. However, the views of the individuals do not necessarily reflect the perspectives of the host facilities. Hi everyone and welcome to a new episode of Trainer Talks and Tales. You are joined by, of course, your two co-hosts, Daisy and Tess. Hi everyone, happy Thursday. We have a great chat coming up today, hey Tess, with another friend of ours. But first of all, Tess, how's your week? Any recommendations for us? Well, first of all, Daisy, you got to stop saying happy Thursday because I listened to our episode today. Today's Monday and it confused the hell out of me. (laughs) We've got to change that up. Yeah, (laughs) that's a very good point. (laughs) (laughs) Depends what day you listen to it. Well, um, yeah, no, I've had a good week. Thank you. Um, My recommendation actually is one that I was thinking about today. It's from personal experience. Um, We talk about often growth mindsets and... Uh, I'm trying to have a growth mindset and sometimes anyone would agree that change can be kind of daunting. So for context, we have a wedge-tailed eagle at our workplace at Lone Pine who has been living on an island for 25 years. So he's been living there. He was shot. He only has um, one proper wing and the other one um, is basically being amputated to a little stump. So he can't fly. He's been living there for 25 years and a few weeks ago we made the decision to move him to a larger exhibit. I'm talking like 10 times the size of the island he was on. Now this island was great but it had eroded over the last 25 years. There's just trees on it that had gotten so big so it was just more of a space thing and giving him a lot more room. Um, So I was really nervous about this move and I was really worried about him. And, but anyway, we went ahead with it and he's in this new exhibit and he has absolutely flourished. And it's just been such a lovely reminder to myself that change isn't always a bad thing. Change is actually most of the time a really good thing. So he's got so much room now, like to the point that we can actually train him. We're not on like five meters squared of, of this little island. Um, he's approaching us because he feels comfortable. Uh, he's showing like natural hunting behavior, like chasing water dragons around the exhibit and that kind of stuff. So yeah, I was just reflecting on that today and I thought that that was good to pass on that if you are worried about a particular animal's move maybe to a different exhibit or there's big changes happening that often that, yeah, that change is actually a really good thing. <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting to hear and how enriching that would have been for Talon after spending so long in the same sort of space, even though the space he was in prior to that was pretty awesome because there was a lot of different things happening every day but so cool that he now has a huge habitat that he can live out yes no we're stoked with it so yeah that was um that was my little recommendation for the week uh but anyway how about you what's happening in the life of daisy yeah good uh nothing too exciting i spent a long weekend with friends which was super fun had some downtime off work which was nice Um, But my recommendation this week I have for you, Tess, and for everyone listening, I actually cannot take credit for, as it came from one of my really good friends and colleagues, Jess. She sent this podcast to me, and it's one of the newest episodes on the NEI Tech Talks podcast, which I have recommended on here before. So if you haven't listened to the episodes, definitely check it out. But this one in particular is called Putting Rungs on Your Ladder, and it's with Tim Sullivan, who was one of the keynote speakers at the AIDS AK conference last year that Tess and I got to attend slightly earlier in the year. The chat, They chat, sorry, about such a huge variety of things. It's quite a long episode, but I really, really recommend pursuing with the whole episode. Um, they talk a lot about personal development, which I think is really interesting, how the industry's changed over the last few years. Tim himself is so easy to listen to. He has, you know, over 40 years worth of experience and someone that I think Tess and I would really like to get on the podcast one day. I like that little plug. Nice one. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely recommend. (laughs) I think you'd really like it too, Tess. So definitely listen. No, it sounds good. Um, He was so easy to listen to and so engaging. So um, I will definitely add it to my 
list of podcasts. Now, this week, uh, we're going to be joined by Jacob, who is one of the marine animal specialists at SeaWorld on the Gold Coast. We chat about a variety of marine mammals, but one of the main species is polar bears. And Daisy, last week was polar bear week. Yes, exactly was. Now, Polar Bear Week was actually started by Polar Bears International, and the week coincides with the annual gathering of polar bears near Churchill, which is in Canada. And Churchill is absolutely on, like, my top three must-go places bucket list in the world. It's about $12,000 per night to stay there, but it's still on the list one day. Um, But it actually draws attention to the fact that the polar bears are there as they wait for the sea ice to form on the Hudson Bay so they can return to hunting seals. Now, during this week, they're able to draw attention to the threats polar bears are facing in the warming Arctic. That's really cool. We love any animal day or week or month uh, celebrating such important species and their roles in our ecosystems alongside their ever-growing threats. Anyway, we hope you enjoy learning about them. Uh, polar bears enrichment training, it's a great app. So let's get into it. Let's do it. Well, Jacob, we're so excited to have you on Training Talks and Tales. And we want to learn all about polar bears and enrichment. But before we get into that, we're going to go straight into our fast five, if that's cool with you. Yeah, sounds good. All right. Number one, Europe or America? Oh, America. Dogs or cats? Dogs. What's your favourite animal? <laughs> little penguins are up there. Daisy will be happy to hear that. Little penguins Ew. definitely up there. <laughs> Go the penguins. <laughs> nice. Uh, polar bears or sun bears? Polar bears. Last one, Grey's Anatomy or Scrubs? I've never seen Scrubs, so I'm going to have to go with Grey's Anatomy on that one. <laughs> yeah. You Daisy def- wrote that. Uh, <laughs> I definitely did. Grace Anatomy is my life. <laughs> <laughs> Jacob, again, thank you so much for coming on. And like Tess said, we are so excited to dive straight into the fact that you have the opportunity to work with polar bears. And even though this episode is coming out next week, this week that we're recording, it's actually Polar Bear Week internationally. So we're chatting all about them, which is fun. But before we get all into that, we would absolutely love for you to share how you got to where you are now. Yeah, absolutely. So I always um, love hearing people's stories about how they got into the industry. Everyone's a little bit different. Um, but for me, um, I definitely had a love from a love of animals uh, from a very, very, very young age. Um, my parents got annoyed taking me to the zoo by the time I was four or five years old because I just wouldn't shut up telling everybody that would listen every fact I knew about every animal. Yes. And by the time I was 16, I was able to volunteer at a little wildlife park on the central coast of New South Wales. So literally every weekend, um, school holidays every day, be driving out there on my learner's permit and just spending as much time there as possible, you know, learning from the keepers and the rangers there. Um, and just before I turned 18, I was able to get a casual job, so paid job there, which was really cool. Um, it was quite a small park, so, you know, somewhat understaffed at times. So, you know, it was definitely one of those thrown into the deep end and got to learn so many different aspects of, um, you know, animal care and husbandry, mainly working with Natives, you know, got to work with, you know, your, your typical Australian marsupials, you know, koalas, kangaroos, devils and the like, plenty of reptiles and birds as well. So I kind of got a little bit of a taste of everything there. Um, and at that time, I was also studying my Cert 3 in captive animals and I was not called that anymore. And also had a degree, I was studying a degree in biodiversity and conservation science. So I kind of finished all that up at the same time, managed to juggle it all um, and then worked at a a dog shelter for a little while as well and then I was lucky enough uh nine years ago now to apply for a job at SeaWorld I applied for a bunch of jobs I got an interview at SeaWorld um and was lucky enough to get a job there in the animal care department so that's where I kind of started my SeaWorld career working with um seals and sea lions or first seals and sea lions I should say um actually we did have um, some true seals at that time as well when I started which was pretty special um, and then also um, working with the little penguins, pelicans. And then um, as time went on, I was lucky enough to get trained up with the polar bears as well as the Antarctic penguins there as well. Uh, so work in a combination of all those areas today still at SeaWorld. Wow, wow that's amazing. so amazing. <laughs> Do you look back on your volunteer work and think that that's probably played a good role in where you are now and would like recommend it to people? Oh, 100%. I would say volunteering I know it's a little bit different now. Back then, I guess the certification wasn't as necessary. I think it's becoming more of a requirement in job roles and stuff now to have it. And it's definitely very useful to have. But 
I think volunteering and showing, you know, showing that you're keen and, and developing those skills, you know, people seeing that. Um, and yeah, I think that's a really, really important way to do it. And, you know, every, once a week, at least, you know, um, guests will come and be like, oh, how do you get into this job? And I always recommend, you know, you can do the study, but definitely if there's an opportunity to volunteer, um, do that. Even if it's not with the animals you necessarily want to work with in the end, you know, like, cool, I want to be a carnival keeper. Okay, well, your first volunteer job might not be working with big cats or bears or whatever. But um, definitely start volunteering with anything, getting those skills that you can, you know, apply as you, you know, advance in your zookeeping career. So, yeah, volunteering is so invaluable. Yeah, that's incredible. I love that advice. And that's so impressive too that you're working with polar bears now. Was that something that you were like, okay, I've got a job at SeaWorld, I want to work with polar bears? Or was it something that you kind of um, were offered down the track and were like, yeah, I'll definitely do that? I'll go as far to say that I wasn't even offered it literally just happened so I was working in the animal care department for about two years and then my roster came out one day and uh, my boss actually supervised the animal care department and the polar bear department so you know she knew my work ethic you know um obviously I was a good enough worker to be able to have the opportunity but I literally checked the roster one day I'm like oh Jacob you got some polar bear shifts coming up I was like what went and I was like what's this she's like oh yeah I wanted to surprise you with it you're getting trained up with the polar bears so I was like no way you know from when I started at SeaWorld it wasn't wasn't necessarily a, a goal. I think just so overwhelmed being able to work with so many amazing animals already, you know, penguins, sea lions and the like. And then, um, yeah, I <laughs> saw that roster. So I was um, going to start training up with the polar bears as well and kind of never look back from there. So, yeah, it's kind of crazy how that happened. No, There's been a awesome. couple of times in my career where I have, like, got to the point of tears. And one of them was when I was lucky enough to come behind the scenes at Polar Bears at SeaWorld and just come face to face with one of theirs. That was probably one of the coolest moments of my yeah, whole career. There's definitely been plenty of happy tears behind the scenes in yeah. that building. For me, there's like, I guess the list of animals might be a bit different for everybody. But for me, there's some of those animals that just sit up on that pedestal above others, you know, um, for me, like elephants orcas, rhinos, you know, those animals that just have that majesty about them and polar bears are definitely on that list. And I think they would be for a lot of people. And um, yeah, it's it's great we are able to do so many um, VIP and behind the scenes tours with the bears and show people and you can literally be, you know, a metre away from a 500 kilo polar bear and there are not many feelings that can replicate that, you know. Um, it's absolutely insane. And, you know, it's, it's still one of those things, you know, I pinch myself every day and that sounds really cliche and cheesy, but like it's a very, very, very niche job here in Australia. There is one facility with polar bears. There are three individual polar bears in the entire country, I think possibly in the entire Southern Hemisphere. And I'm lucky enough to say I'm one of the people that gets to work with them. So, yeah, it's yeah. Pretty, pretty special. That's so incredible. Well, we want to get straight into that. So tell us a little bit more about it. What has it been like to work with them? And can you tell us uh, something you've learned from them as well? Yeah, absolutely. So... They very much so are um, very patient and methodical and intelligent animals. They're an apex predator and they live in one of the harshest environments known to man. So um, they aren't in a rush to do anything. A lot of things are on bear time. Um, and you kind of work along with them. You know, over the years, obviously, the keeping team has been able to develop such great relationships with them that we can do lots of cooperative care and lots of, um, you know, shifting them around for most of the year is really easy and, you know, um working with them you know there's definitely a relationship there and they're they're very um they're, they're very willing to cooperate with us you know in in their general care and stuff like that but at the same time they are just incredibly fun and playful and independent you know especially um our youngest bear mishka the female um she, even when it comes to things like enrichment and stuff like that you know she will play with the same toy for an hour you know, and then she'll go find another one and then play with that one for an hour, you know, like just very much so they engage with their environment in such a different way to any other animal that I've kind of worked with, which is so nice to see, you know, um, conditioning animals to enrichment, you know, um, that's something we very much have to do with certain species that may not innately just want to engage with that enrichment item. Polar bears, like they just find fun in absolutely anything, you know, um, which is a really, really amazing thing. But as for something they've taught me, they've certainly taught me 
patience in building relationship and rapport with them. Uh, obviously, the interactions that we have with the bears is a protective contact system. Um, we're not in the exact same space as a 500 kilo polar bear at any time. Um, so, uh, yeah, learning patience. And I think um, coming from working with the seals, where, you know, seals are quite, you know, quick and responsive for the most part, you know, it's kind of, you know, things can be fairly fast paced, I suppose. You have to just bring that energy way, way down when working with the bears um, and really take the time to get to know them. With two of the bears that I first started working with, you know, they were um, quite forgiving, you know, as I was getting to know them and, you know, doing little general husbandry training sessions and stuff with them and um, figuring out what their favourite foods are and their favourite toys and things like that with our remote sessions and stuff, and they were quite good. And I tried that same approach with a third bear. Uh, his name is Nelson and went a little bit too quick for him. So he was a little bit more apprehensive to want to participate in those sessions with me, kind of... Um, be a little bit cheekier, you know, like um, he was, it was a bit harder to kind of crack him. Uh, anyway, I took a year off from um, working at SeaWorld to go traveling and came back. And I kind of wanted to take a very different approach with Nelson rather than just coming in and, you know, asking him to do this, try and do this, just spent a lot more time with him doing nothing, just hanging out, giving him his favorite food, sitting there chatting to him, getting him used to me just over a short, shorter period of time doing that. And now he's a fairly um, cooperative bear when I'm doing these sessions and stuff with him. So kind of earning that kind of respect from him, I guess, if that makes sense. Um, they all do have such individual personalities. And, yeah, some are a lot more forgiving and, you know, just eager to please and stuff, whereas Nelson it took a little bit more time to crack him. So you definitely learn patience and not to kind of rush into things with them. It's amazing to hear that they all have such different personalities. And you briefly touched on the cooperative care behaviours that you train with them. And I was lucky enough to see, I think, one of the blood draw approximations when I was there. Mm. What mm. other sort of cooperative care behaviours do the polar bears know? Daily we'll do like the basic um, just body checks. So, you know, um, they'll come up to the mesh, they'll sit down, which is kind of they sit down, that start a session generally, and we'll just ask them to present different parts of their body. So they'll do just a nose tight. We can check their nose. We can ask them to tilt their head to check their eyes uh, and their ears. We can ask them to open their mouth so we can check their teeth and their gums and their tongue. Uh, they'll press up and present their neck. They'll present their shoulders. Um, they'll present their paws up so we can check, you know, their claws and the um the glands between their paws and, you know, the underside of their foot pads and all that sort of thing. Um, and we can, in certain areas of the dens, also ask them to stand up so we can kind of get a good look at everything underneath there for a 2.7, 2.8 metre tall polar bear when they're standing up. Um, so that's kind of just our general um, body checks that we do with them um, that they're all conditioned to do. Uh, and then some of the team have been working really hard, particularly with um, Mishka, the female polar bear, to advance uh, other ways she can present different parts of her body to us. So, um, Mishka has been learning a rollover um, and there's a certain area in the dens where we can ask her to roll over and actually inspect her rear end. Um, polar bears, uh, female polar bears are actually prone to a few uh, infections and things down there, you know, internationally. It's, it's, it's kind of somewhat common or not uncommon, I should say. So, you know, that's important to be able to check Mishka down there. And um, the training team um, has done an amazing job with that, getting her comfortable to do that, you know, to be able to handle and look around in all those sorts of areas as well. So those are kind of the basic ones that we're doing. Uh, and then, of course, working on the blood withdrawal training as well. And hopefully in the future, we'll be able to do um, x-rays, all sorts of stuff. We just kind of need, I guess, the equipment to be able to do that safely. But, um, you know, there's big plans to be able to advance all the sorts of cooperative care that we can do with the bears. Yeah, I remember at the conference seeing the progression um, of the, was it Mishka? Um, backing up against the, yeah, the yeah. Um, edge of the enclosure and just like getting more and more confident and even like rolling over mm. and being quite exposed, you know, like on her back and that kind of stuff. And seeing yeah. the progression was so cool. And I think that that's um, really amazing to have this bear have so many approximations to the point where you could have a really good look and yeah that was really cool to see I remember being fascinated by that yeah really yeah cool. and, and that one um that behavior was spearheaded by um one of our head polar bear keepers Nora Tenbrock she's done an absolutely amazing job and that did take a long time to teach Mishka that and there were definitely moments where Nora was pulling her hair out I'm so stuck I can't get any further than this and then to get to the behavior where it's at now we can you know apply topical things to her if we need to um, we can just get a good visual inspection, that sort of thing. One of the funniest things about that behavior is it has, I think, 
inadvertently been paired with a vocalization. <laughs> so um, Mishka, when she goes at that role position, all groan and grumble and stuff like that. It's uh, it's quite cute actually, because um, they're very quiet most of the time. They're actually surprisingly quiet, but that one she um, vocalized a little bit as well. But yeah, it's just so amazing um, to be able to do that. Just you know, all for Mishka's benefit and her care. Plus, she just thrives on doing the, the training sessions. She absolutely loves it. Can you chat quickly about the reinforcers that the polar bears have? Because their diet is completely different to what I kind of imagined a polar bear's diet to be. Yeah, so um, our diet is a little bit of an alternative diet. So um, they have a very high fat content in the wild. They're mainly choosing uh, when it is available to them to eat seal, blubber and skin, you know, the highest calories they possibly can. We don't feed seals to our polar bears, um, but we do try and provide, you know, fairly fatty cuts of meat, things like pork, um, whole chickens, beef trim and things like that, um, as well as fatty fish, so mackerel, mullet, tuna and even little pilchards similar to what we feed the penguins actually they quite enjoy those as well so often we will actually use their dfi um, which is made up of those meat and fish product products um, as reinforcers for them um, but then we do also offer them a small amount of fruits and vegetables as well so um, like most animals they do have a sweet tooth um, even though they wouldn't have a very sugary diet in the wild. So we do give things like, you know, um, watermelon is very, very popular. Mishka would do just about anything for a piece of watermelon. Um, carrots, sweet potato, um, dried fruits and things like that. And also canned sardines in uh, olive oil and also canned sardines in tomato sauce occasionally as well. So <laughs> I don't know what time down the line some of these certain foods were picked because you know you could give them just about anything and i'm sure they would enjoy it they aren't particularly fussy um for the most part um they're happy to kind of have anything but the sardines tend to be quite a good one or if we have got for their dfi to, uh, on that day something like tuna um it's uh, quite popular and um yeah so we can kind of uh, there's a big variety in the reinforcers that we use it's um, not necessarily planned as such, you know, we'll go, okay, cool, we've used this reinforce early and we use something different, you know, there's not really a method to the madness, I suppose. We have such a variety of different things that we can provide that they seem to enjoy. So often we'll provide that variety within a training session as well. Yeah, that's so cool yeah. to hear. And I feel like people wouldn't expect to have polar bears eating some of that stuff, hey? <laughs> no, nah, it does surprise people a little bit. Um, yeah, you know, <laughs> they've got a sweet tooth, you know, I can't blame them. They are the most carnivorous of all bears, but... A little piece of watermelon or carrot certainly goes um goes down a treat. And uh, I will mention as well, I have had a few people listen to the podcast and they're not actually trainers or not necessarily in the zookeeping industry. I will just say DFI is daily food intake. If you didn't uh, yeah, grasp that yeah. in that short, uh, <laughs> I'm sure someone got that in that time. But I have been told that um, we're so into our chat sometimes. Yeah, like, oh, yeah. I know that word. All that little <laughs> yeah. zookeeping jargon. Oh, <laughs> the, the lingo, you know. Yeah, the lingo. <laughs> uh, now, you did briefly touch on this earlier, Jacob. But being the fact that polar bears, I guess, are primarily a solitary species, what sort of enrichment do you offer to ensure that they stay stimulated? Yeah, so um, polar bears, as you said, are primarily a solitary species. Um, but what we often say is they're solitary, but they're not antisocial. So, you know, in the wild, they always know what's going on with other bears just through, you know, smell and, and all the rest. Um, but, yeah, Mishka, she is related to both of the boys. Um, so... Uh, because we don't want any breeding to occur um and obviously they are much bigger than her you know there would be inherent risks in introducing them we could possibly do it but um there'd be a, a big plan and a lot of small approximations to make that happen so you know she is um housed solitarily so i don't know if that's a word she is housed solid as a solitary bet um so yeah we do provide lots and lots of different enrichment for her and for all the bears as well hudson and nelson will socialize and be in the same space uh, for most of the year except for breeding seasons they do have an aspect of social enrichment um with each other um where they'll you know they'll play spa or they'll just be you know swimming around each other and things like that but yeah for mishka we're providing a, a and all the bears we're providing a wide variety of different enrichment items they do seem to be very partial to all sorts of novel items big hard plastic toys that they can bash around and push under the water and all that sort of thing um we often use um a lot of boating equipment and things like that you know fenders and floats and buoys and things like that um which the bears really like anything that floats is really fun until they pop a tooth or a claw in it and then it starts to sink then it's not really as fun anymore so that novel stuff you know um 
it just really, really seems to work for the bears. So we're constantly getting new, you know, novel devices and things like that for them to engage with. Um, but also we have the luxury of having a ice machine that provides three tons of ice to us each day. And we can utilize that in so many different ways. We can just simply pop it all in one giant pile, which the bears often like to, you know, roll around in. It'll help them to dry off after they've had a swim. Um, or we can pop it in a big water tank. So, you know, it's suddenly two meters deep of ice and pop their deer fire at the, uh, their food at the bottom. So they've got to, you know, dig and access and forage that. Or we can get um, their pilchards, you know, maybe there's like 100 pilchards in a bag and we can scatter that all through the ice. So they've got to use their sense of smell. You see them stick their nose in, find out where it is, dig, and, you know, we can create an extended foraging enrichment or foraging opportunity for them as well. Um, so, um, yeah, that's one thing we're doing. One thing I've been doing, trying to do a little bit more, is some more um, kind of scent-based enrichment. I know the guys are always providing lots of different types of scents, but I may get the scents from a food item. So say I've got a big bit of pork for one of the bears and drip the juices and bloods from that pork kind of all around the exhibit and then only offer it after I've seen the bear actively forage around. Okay, cool. Where's my food? There it is. I'll go to the back corner, you know, and once they've done that and searched out that food or you know hunted for that food however you want to kind of like translate it i suppose then we'll offer the food rather than just throwing it in straight away they can go straight to it and eat it they've got to kind of you know utilize some of those natural behaviors um in what i think is quite an enriching manner um before giving that um so the the possibilities are endless we're so lucky to have two staff on per day or working with three individual animals so the polar bear team aren't on a round it's literally just with the polar bears so we can invest so much time observing them seeing what their likes and their dislikes are and putting so much time into enrichment which is really cool oh that's what we love to hear and the fact that you said that they are quite invested in it too like that makes it so much more rewarding and I personally and I'm sure Daisy has too anytime you go to SeaWorld you're just standing there for like an hour and you're watching them engage mm. in one of those toys or like rolling in the snow and that kind of stuff like they really do engage with that and it, they're just amazing to watch like really um, involving themselves in the enrichment so it's good to see and it must be very satisfying for you guys yeah it, it really is you know like when I first started working with them and make this enrichment and put it out and you know it's like time for smoke over I'm like no no I'm just gonna watch it I've wanted to watch them engage with that enrichment because it's so fulfilling um to see that but um the most amazing thing I, I think I touched on it before is they're just so independent and they'll actively seek out things to do in their environment you know we can leave toys out there and they'll choose which uh, you know might have been out there for six hours you know generally speaking if I maybe with one of the first seals or sea lions I've worked with they maybe they wouldn't go and interact with that you know, after six hours of it already being in their environment, but the polar, yeah, cool. I want to play with that. I'm going to put that toy on top of that toy and then take them both to the water. You know, it's almost like problem solving and making games and stuff. Sometimes it's, it's incredible to watch them. Yeah. I would just assume if something's been in there for six hours, it's a no go. <laughs> mm. There you go. Yeah. And yeah, just very different to any other animal that I've worked with in that respect, you know, and we do rotate the toys and stuff very regularly, but um, yeah, they just, yeah, it's, 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 it's very, very different. Yeah. Well, speaking about enrichment, um, you've worked with numerous other species like penguins and seals. What are some important things to consider when planning species-specific enrichment? Yeah, um, one of the first things you've got to start with, I guess, um, which is probably one of the less fun aspects of making enrichment is safety. You know, you've got to make sure there's no entrapment risk or ingestion risk or anything like that when you're providing it for the for the animal. Um, and then when you look past that, um, what we try to do, I suppose, is look at that species natural history and its natural behavior um so you know of course you know we can throw a ball in for a sea lion and maybe you'll want to engage with it you know that's not necessary and you know after you've seen it a few times you know it's not as novel anymore and not as interesting so what we're kind of thinking okay sea lions you know they tend to forage you know in the water column or even you know for australian sea lions often on the you know the the sea floor and things like that um, so kind of trying to incorporate more foraging enrichment where possible in that water column or on the, or on the pool floor and things like that. So they're not just always doing things, um, on land or at the water surface, you know, trying to incorporate all the different aspects of, of where they would be naturally residing and, and behaving, um, in the wild. Um, and novel enrichment certainly has its place. 
um, where, you know, it's just something that maybe they wouldn't see it in the wild. You know, we popped the kayak in with one of our first seals yesterday. You know, maybe he would see that from where he's from, maybe he wouldn't, you know, but it was extremely, you know, enriching for him because he's like, I've never seen anything like this before. Not necessarily a natural enrichment, but, you know, novel enrichment certainly has its place as well. But, yeah, I think it's a good start to look at um, the natural history of that animal and, you know, how it, be, how it would be behaving um, in the wild and try and go from try and go from there, at least for, you know, some of your enrichment that you're utilising. Yeah, I love how you've spoken about, you know, really paying attention to what these animals are up to in the <coughs> wild. I remember a podcast with one of the trainers at Taronga, I think you mentioned about they were finding their Aussie sea lions were super interactive with their enrichment, but their fur seals weren't. And they had a look at, you know, the difference in their diets would be in the wild and found that, unfortunately, sometimes long-nosed fur seals like to eat little penguins. Uh, so they mm. gathered some of the feathers from their penguins' malt and placed that in the exhibit, and they found that super enriching. So it's super important, I guess, to look look into what they're up to in the wild and how we can replicate that in human care too. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, and, you know, going back to bears and stuff as well, you know, their strongest sense is their sense of smell. So the more different sense we can provide, maybe we can't provide things from the Arctic that they would naturally smell out in the wild, but we utilise, yeah, penguin feathers, seal oil um, and things like that. And, you know, sometimes they're kind of like, yeah, cool, yeah, I'm not that interested. And sometimes you'll see them rolling around and it'll really engage with it and stuff as well. So what are those animals utilising? Um, what problem-solving skills they're utilising as well as, you know, the actual physicality um you know like I said Mishka um you know she often creates her own games and you know puts this enrichment toy near this other one you know plays them together and stuff but also we try to create options for natural behaviors too one thing we've got for her is this big um I think it's a tractor tire with um fire hose weaved over it so you know she pushes on it and it has a bit of give and that kind of replicates as we put it in and she just went straight to doing this pushing behavior which would be what she'd be doing if she was pounding through the ice to get to a seal um you know through a seal breathing hole or something like that so um yeah you can get creative and kind of think what would these guys be doing in the wild and um you can often base a lot of enrichment not all of it you know around doing that um so that's one thing you can look at and then yeah i think just trying to be creative you know um creative as possible to create things that are novel and new you know some things that may have been amazingly enriching initially after a few exposures maybe it won't be that enriching to that animal anymore so we've just got to kind of really stay creative and um talk amongst you know ourselves and and you know look at what other facilities are doing as well for sure to get um new ideas all the time yeah definitely i think observing also plays such a huge role in that and making sure that things aren't getting too repetitive now obviously enrichment does usually fall into slightly different categories like you've mentioned a couple of examples of environmental enrichment sensory food-based etc can you share with us maybe some of the examples of the most effective enrichment that you've seen with some of the different species you're lucky enough to work with yeah, so um, recently we've kind of um, moved with our enrichment or tried to move with our enrichment rather than it being item-based. So today we're going to put balls in or today we're going to put floats in. It's more goal-based. So, um, you know, foraging or um, social is a huge one, cognitive. Um, for our, um, we're lucky enough to have a variety of different species of seals and sea lions, and one of the most amazing things we can do is changing up their social groups. You know, these guys aren't in nuclear groups where they all stay together all the time like, you know, a lot of other animals might be. So, you know, if we move the animals around um, and introduce them to different social groups, you know, we had two of our uh, two different species, uh, a subantarctic and long-nosed fur seal. They shed pens next to each other, you know, quite regularly, but um, we hadn't socialised them for quite some time and just, you know, seeing the difference in their behaviour, wanting to interact with each other and all that sort of thing. And then the next day we pop a female in, that changes his behaviour again, you know. Um, so we don't always have them in, in this, the same group all the time and changing that um, social dynamic is definitely um, one thing that we can do. And I think that's quite effective with a lot of the seals and seals to kind of encourage a bit more, you know, play behaviour and stuff like that. And, um, again, on the seals and seals, one of the most effective things that I've kind of seen um with them is trying to incorporate more enrichment in the water column or on the floor. So, um, you know, we can throw all these different items and stuff into the pool and, you know, um, sitting on the surface, not as engaged, but we're trying to be getting in the water with the more things that will sink. And generally we've seen uh, anecdotally, you know, we are trying to record as much as possible so we can say, yes, they engage with this more or this less and things like that as well. But, you know, seeing them engage with those sorts of items a lot more. Another thing I've noticed recently is actually, getting a new item and actually hopping in the water with some of our sea lions and, you know, I'm holding the item, moving it around and I'm moving with it. You know, I obviously have a very positive connotation to myself just through the interactions that we have with the animal. Um, and that I think combined with this novel item, 
the animal seems to be engaged for a lot longer, generally speaking, versus if I just put that item in and I wasn't there. But another thing we do with the seals is we take them on park walks as well so they can go and have a look at the polar bears through the window then go look at the little penguins through the window and stuff like that so you know they're just constantly in a varied environment. We try to do that as often as we can too. So those are some of the most effective ones that I have seen with um, with the fur seals and sea lions. Um, with the bears, you know, we provide enrichment and mainly novel items and stuff at the moment. Um, some of the best enrichment I think we can provide them is during the breeding season, just having that large diversity of different nesting materials and suspending some and having some, you know, tucked right into logs and stuff like that. So rather than they just go pick it up and take it to their nest, you know, they're utilising that time budget more searching for the materials they want and things like that as well. Um, but yeah, definitely want to get into doing some more water-based enrichment with the penguins too, because in the wild, they'd be spending so much time in the water hunting and foraging. So kind of potentially trying to look at some more foraging enrichment stuff for them as well. But yeah, you definitely over time working with the animals, um, you get to learn their individual likes and dislikes, not even as a species level, at an individual level. And I think it's really important that we log and note that so that we can go in and try and effectively provide enrichment that they want to utilize. Yeah, I love that you guys can offer the seals the opportunity to walk around the park. Like that must be so enriching for those animals and such a unique opportunity for guests to be able to observe as well. And with penguins, I find that they are quite a hard animal to enrich. Ours are the same. They absolutely love nesting materials. They are really quite heavily socially enriched. Uh, but mm. any sort of flash- flashing lights, reflections from the sun, that definitely gets most of our penguins yeah. engaged. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We've seen that with um, a few of the birds recently actually just tried, yeah, like a little laser pointer on the wall. And they're like, oh, what is that? They all go and check it out. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, it's novel. Nah. It's not exactly natural, but you can see that it alters their behaviour. Um, so, you know, that's... In a, in a seemingly positive way so that's you know that's a win yeah definitely so moving on a little bit from enrichment you have also chatted to me in the past jacob about you have such a cool interest in choice and control which i feel like is such a hot topic at the moment and something that would probably take us a fair few hours to completely dive into but i definitely find it really interesting as well and i was just wondering if you could maybe explain to the listeners what you believe the difference between choice and control is yeah you're um Absolutely right with choice and control being a hot topic at the moment. Um, It seems to be getting discussed more and more. Um, And I think it's really cool to see so many people quite excited and inspired by it at the moment and trying to incorporate it into their day-to-day with the animals as well as into their training. But it remains quite a confusing topic. And I'll admit I've been on both sides of the spectrum, you know, like I'm often confused by it depending on the particular discussion I have with someone. Then I am also trying where possible to incorporate it into training sessions with individual animals and individual situations and um, individual behaviours as well. So uh, I think the confusing part is, you know, inherently the animals that we work with are generally surrounded by choices in, you know, all their day-to-day life and, you know, to an extent with their training as well. So it's not a matter of if they had a choice, it's more so, you know, should we be providing more choices or different choices or do they have access to equal choices and this is just where you can go down all these different rabbit holes and can get really really confusing and make your mind melt a little bit um but yeah um my knowledge of it is yeah basically from reading a few papers and articles and stuff as well as you know discussions with you know co-workers and fortunately a few training gurus that I've been lucky enough to meet and stuff as well plus you know my own experiences of trying to offer more choices in training sessions as well. So with choice, um, I guess my interpretation of it is being able to offer a variety of options to an animal, two or more options to the animal to choose from. Um, And it is likely to make that choice to exert control over the outcome. You know, it's going to, for instance, um, choose to lie in the sun because the outcome, which is a predictable outcome, is it's going to be able to warm up or it's going to choose to jump in the water because the predictable outcome is going to be able to cool down or it's going to um, choose to participate in a positive reinforcement training session because the likely outcome is it's going to be able to receive primary reinforcement or, or food or whatever your reinforcer is. So um, in that sense, um, that's kind of the gist of it. And we're always providing, as I said, um, where possible as animal care professionals, choices to these animals um, in their environment. You know, before I even interact with the bears, before I even have anything to do with it, they've got choices of where they want to sleep, whether they want to play with this particular toy or whether they want to swim in the freshwater pool or the saltwater pool, you know. And the interesting thing is I don't know why they're making those choices. I wish I could read Mishka's mind and know why she makes that particular choice, but I can't. Um, but, yeah, then when you come into training, again, this is where it can be an interesting discussion because, you know, the animal's 
do always have the choice, I suppose. They have the choice of whether they want to engage in that session or the, uh, the choice to opt out if something is more reinforcing for them at that time. And I guess where I've mainly seen it used <clears throat> and where I've used it in a few examples or I think I'm applying it in certain examples, I suppose, is often when you kind of hit a bit of a roadblock with a particular behaviour and kind of taking a step back and having a look, okay, why am I hitting this roadblock? Has it got to do with me or can I actually, you know, give more choices to make this behaviour a little bit more successful? And I think a lot of the examples that you'll read are perhaps some um, fearful animals or animals that, um, you know, social issues and things like that, I suppose. So um, you kind of hit that complication. And then I think rather than, I guess, approaching that um, situation and trying to provide different choices or more choices to that animal. Um, so it might be easier. Can I give you an example? Please, yeah, definitely. That. Yeah. So, uh, and again, this may be interpreted by some trainers as this isn't choice and control or, or it is, but in my mind it is. Um, and it, it's kind of, I, I think, letting the animal sometimes choose its own approximations, especially in a situation where maybe that animal is fearful. So um, I work with a big, beautiful, long-nosed fur seal who uh, is quite fearful of, of a few different um, things that we utilise in his day-to-day -day care. Um, and that fear can often turn to, you know, he's got a bit more of a fight than a flight response. So we do have to be quite careful working on this animal. And there were two behaviours that I um, took over doing. One of them was a girth measurement. So we use a tape measure and wrap it around his armpits um, to, you know, check his girth and in correspondence with his weight and photos and stuff. We can see how his body condition tracks throughout the year. And another one was a crating behaviour. Um, to get into a transport crate to potentially move to different areas of the park if necessary. And um, there was a bit of negative history behind both of these behaviours. Um, so when I came in, you know, kind of took an, a bit of an approach of like, okay, I'm going to let you kind of choose your approximations rather than me, I'll go to the, the tape measure. Rather than me asking you to move towards the tape measure, you know, before you're ready and you're showing this hesitation, you show this hesitation, I'm kind of maybe targeting you forward when you're not comfortable. I presented the tape measure to him. He knew what it was. He had a bit of an understanding of this behaviour. And kind of literally just let him see what he offered me in that instance. Where where are you comfortable in regards to this tape measure? And didn't necessarily ask anything of him. And then he decided to lie down and pop his chin on the tape measure. And even though I didn't ask that of him, um, you know, I didn't send an SD to lie down near the tape measure or anything, I reinforced that because he had a positive attitude towards that training session. And he um you know made the choice to engage in that training session and that kind of almost started as that was his if i present the tape measure to him that was his um i think they call it like a start button you know i'm ready to participate because i'm willing to at least engage in some way with this object that i'm historically quite scared of and then you know i kind of work through small approximations with him to get more and more comfortable and develop the behavior but occasionally you know even if i didn't ask him and he made this step of i'm going to shuffle a bit further over the tape measure or something like that you know even if i didn't ask him he made the choice he had positive attitude he wanted to keep engaging that session so i would reinforce that as well as asking him the small approximations uh, that, that sounds quite rambly <laughs> I, I hope that makes sense but um yeah that, that's one aspect that i've kind of used it and i guess um you know something in the future i guess would be you know uh ability to opt out of a training session um, and receive equal reinforcement because, you know, if you opt out of a training session, you don't receive reinforcement, you know, is it really an equal choice? Um, so, yeah, you know, there's there's lots of different examples, obviously, of, of, of how you can utilise in your training. And I think it just comes sometimes to just letting the animal show you what it is ready to decide to do and what choice it is willing to make. Yeah, no, I think that's super interesting. And I like that you brought up about the opt out um, behavior because I think that's something that we're starting to see in different facilities across the industry and I think I've heard of uh, in the past I think with dolphins where they gave the option for dolphins to participate in interactives or they had two other things for them to choose to interact with that weren't with guests and by offering the option for them to choose not to they found that they chose more likely to than not which I think is really cool. And again, I'm probably rambling a little bit. It doesn't make complete sense. And I'm sure they explained it a whole lot better. But I was really fascinated by that and being able to give those animals the opportunity to not participate in something that they don't want to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that makes uh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think um, one of the hard parts is really knowing if that animal is making a choice because I think a lot of choices are made on um, reinforcement history, you know, like so 
you're receiving equal choice to opt out or do the guest interaction or go and play with enrichment, but does the reinforce that you'll receive have to be equal for it to be an equal choice? This is some of those conversations we go down. I don't know the answer, you know, it gets, it's, it's very, very complicated, but um, yeah, it's definitely something I think we're going to see progress. I'm really excited to see um, more and more examples of it as people are trying to implement it more in their, their training and their day-to-day working with their animals or working with the animals. Yeah, even me listening to that, I was like, wow, a lot of th- lots to think about there for sure. <laughs> um, well, we love to end the show with um, going straight to our questions from our listeners, and we did have a few submitted, so um, we might get straight into that. Yep. Now, number one was, did you find there was a lot of competition when getting into the marine field, and in particular with bears? Um, I suppose at surface level, Getting a job with polar bears, there is a lot of competition because I said there's there's three bears. There's not a lot of jobs going around um, with them. Um, but I guess competition, it, it's somewhat relevant, I, I guess. You know, we're talking about volunteering and getting your skills up and getting your certifications and proving yourself and things like that. And that often translates into your interview process and your interactions that you might have during an interview as well. So I think having that skill set behind you, you know, and just being confident in your abilities and, and all that sort of thing, you know, makes you a fair game in the competition to get those sorts of jobs. I never felt like I was really competing against anyone else to get those jobs. And there's certainly a lot of people I know that are really, really keen to get into it. But, you know, I kind of said, and if you want to be seen equally amongst the competition, you need to put in that work. You know, if you haven't committed to study or you haven't committed to doing anything with animals, why would they pick you compared to someone that is doing all of that? So, you know, put in the hard work and um, yeah, then it's kind of fair game, I suppose, or fair competition. Um, but yeah, I, I never felt like I had to really outcompete with anyone or anything like that. Um, and I think one thing that's really important is to always just, you know, in the instance with the bears, you know, not that I did, but some people register their interests. Hey, I'd be keen to work with the bears. Then you're on, you know, the management team's radar is okay, cool. we need a new bear keeper, we'll consider this person, go talk to their supervisors, see how they work and see if they're an appropriate fit. If they never voice that, then maybe they just would have been completely overlooked. So um, what you said at the start was something about, you know, if you want to work with big cats, don't just go down the avenue of like all the volunteer stuff, everything I want to learn mm. has to be about big cats. Like look at everything as a whole because you're going to absolutely learn something from every species and every sort of learning opportunity is going to hopefully contribute to you getting that role that you want in the future. That's it. At the end of the day, we look after animals and so many different aspects of that can be just translated across any species that you're working with you know i've got things i learned from working with koalas that i can translate to real bears to polar bears you know like even though they're so completely different in their husbandry and their care there's things that you can translate no matter what animal you're working with so i think you know take whatever job you can get if you're lucky enough that's like when i applied for SeaWorld, i applied for about four jobs i think one was i think there was like two bird ones you know the SeaWorld marine animal one and there was um a carnival one and something else you know like I, I wasn't particularly fussy as to what I ended up in you know maybe it could have been on a completely different path if um I got one of those other jobs but you know I think you can't afford to be particularly fussy you can have your goals absolutely work towards your goals or what you want to work with in the end but um don't let that be at the expense of not taking on opportunities because um yeah I think um you've got to take any opportunity you can get in in this field yeah, absolutely. We've heard that a lot, actually. This like seize any opportunity, just say yes. And I think it's important too that you said that you flagged with managers, like, "Hey, I'm I'm interested in this." Because um, sometimes, like I've found personally, like when we're hiring internally, um, there's roles, and I've never even seen people interested, or they've never mentioned they're interested. I was mm. like, "Oh, well, I'm not, probably not going to consider you because I didn't even know you had this interest." But it can go the other way too, where people are too persistent and they're like, "Overly oh, this, this. Yeah. yeah, and it, that rubs me the wrong way, and I'm like, "Not too much." So you've got to find that balance of like, <laughs> "Yeah, I'm find keen. the happy medium." Yeah, yeah, I'm keen and I'm interested, and I'll leave it at that. <laughs> mm. Yeah, definitely. Um, now, question number two, you kind of briefly answered, I guess, a little bit earlier with the choice and control, but is there another behaviour or something that you would like to see or you would like to train in the future that could encourage further choice and control? Um, I like the idea of the animal being able to pick its reinforcers. Um, I've dabbled very, very briefly in it with the bears. You know, like I said, we've normally got a big mixed bag of things that we can provide for them. It doesn't necessarily come out in any particular order because they're not particularly fussy, but, you know, being able to say, cool, here's your three reinforcers. Which one do you want to participate in this session for? Um, But then also, I guess, to do that, you kind of need to train a way that they can 
communicate that. You know, the first time I tried it, I literally just, you know, sound, sound simple, pop three different, I think I had a thing of sweet potato, a thing of carrots and a thing of um, grapes in front of Mishka and didn't know what she was going to do. She lay down and, and in front of the grapes. I was like, yeah, okay, that's weird. She doesn't normally like grapes that much, but yeah, sweet. Started giving me the grapes. She spat them all out, you know, so it wasn't necessarily an indicator. That's exactly what she wanted. So kind of having to train them to know that they're making that choice, I, I suppose. Um, but I like the idea of yeah, being able to pick their own reinforcer. Um, yeah, so that's something I'd like to, I guess, look a little bit more into. Yeah, definitely. We actually um, spoke to Dean Jones, who used to work at SeaWorld in one of our earlier episodes, mm. and he spoke all about how they trained their elephants to choose their reinforcer. And different reinforcers were conditioned with a different, um, like a visual image for them, which I just thought mm. was amazing and so progressive as well. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, then that's really, you know, yeah, that's like the ultimate choice in control, I think. You know, that's really, really cool stuff. Of course, Dean could manage something like that. <laughs> I don't know. What, what a champion. <laughs> um, now, the final question we had in from one of our listeners was, what's something people wouldn't know about polar bears? Oh, my goodness. Um, some people might know. This is might be a bit of a basic fact. I'm going to have to back this one up with something a little bit harder. But um, polar bears, their skin is actually black. So when we do our blood withdrawals and you actually we shave a little bit of um, fur back on the paw so we can more easily see um, the blood vessel to take that sample, um, sometimes the bears will have like a little black patch on their hand. Um, so, yeah, their skin's black. There's a, not 100% sure. Scientists aren't 100% sure why that is. Um, yeah, but that um, isn't the case when they're born. It starts off pink and then it goes black with age. So even when they open their mouth, their tongue isn't and their mouth isn't pink. It's kind of like a purpley colour because of that melanin in their skin. Wow, that's such a cool fact. I would actually don't think I would have known that. So <laughs> definitely some people that do not know that. So that's Great. so good. <laughs> I Jacob. read it on the sign at SeaWorld. There is some good signage there with that. Oh, another fun fact, actually. Um, beautiful Mishka. She is the only polar bear in the entire world with a birthday in April. Wow. Because polar bears in the Northern Hemisphere normally are born in like November, December quite um, consistently to match in with the seasons and stuff like that. So she's the only polar bear with a birthday in April. I actually <laughs> thought you were going to lead into some, like, dad joke with that. I was no, waiting, no. <laughs> waiting to hear. I was like, is he setting us up right now? <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, that's so cool. Jacob, this has been such an honour to have this conversation with you and for you coming on the podcast. I'm sure everyone listening is going to get so much out of the experience you've got with polar bears, chatting about enrichment and starting the conversation on choice and control. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much, guys. It was so much fun. Um, yeah, absolute blast. So thanks heaps and um, I'm sure I'll see you around. Thank you. I know that you said this last week, Tess, but I do really enjoy interviewing people that we have a connection with and people that we know. It's super fun. And I really enjoyed, you know, learning all about the different marine animals that they have at SeaWorld. And I've definitely recommended going to SeaWorld before on the podcast and especially trying to get a glimpse of them taking their seals on a walk around the park because that's that's pretty unique. Yes, I think you and I are going to go have a date day at SeaWorld soon, Daisy. I think that's yes. all it is. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, guys, for listening. We love having you give us your feedback and say that you love the episodes. It makes it all worthwhile. Uh, we hope you have a great week and we'll see you next week. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.